Good morning, everyone. Before I read the reading, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach and encourage us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The reading is taken from John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails and his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Hear the word of the Lord. Morning again. Uh, one thing it helps to do when you're reading the Bible is to ask, what if this story just wasn't here? What if the Bible was, was exactly as we have it, except this particular story was, was gone, was taken out, missing. Well, in our reading from today, John tells us in verse 30, if you have your own Bible and following along, that might help, but Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, that means that John selectively chose the stories that he tells us about Jesus. And in the next verse, he tells us exactly why it's these stories that he tells us. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That means that John, the Gospel writer, has decided to include the story of Thomas and that Thomas doubted at his resurrection. So without that story, then, what would Christians have to look at 
to find what resource would we be given by God for dealing with the fact that we too have doubts. We might find the story of Gideon that when he wasn't really sure, he he kind of made this strange test for God involving fleece and dew and whatever. But Christians have found that that story is not really normative. You can't take that and have it solve all your conundrums about not knowing. So maybe we'd find in the book of Hebrews that unbelief is named as the problem that frustrated God's people throughout their long history as they went towards the promised land. So without this story about Thomas, we might not be able to differentiate between the sin of unbelief and the experience of doubt. So this story offers us something particular in the bigger biblical story of experiencing doubts. For Thomas, it's a particular kind of doubt. I think it's the doubt that comes from uh, disappointment, the experience of loss. It's not dissimilar to that same experience throughout the Psalms and Lamentations. But there are all kinds of doubt throughout the Bible. There's the doubt that comes from being faced with convincing or powerful alternatives, uh, like when the early church wondered about the place of Gentiles among the people of God and whether they could be welcomed in, which Acts chapter 15 resolves. Then there's the soft doubt of believing what God has said but seeking the way forward uncertainly, like when Mary says, how can this be? Now, in your life, you won't escape most or all of these doubts. So let's get familiar with Thomas's doubts that we might face them better. And the first thing that we can say is that the, when, we, when we consider that this story is here, this is part of what it means to come to believe in Jesus, then the first thing we can say is that this story gives us permission to doubt. Permission to admit that we have doubts. Now, Thomas is not reprimanded, and if it is, it's incredibly soft. He's not called a sinner. He's not treated just like Judas in the stories. He's not even lumped in with Peter, although he had to have his own story of restoration. No, we are given permission by this story and and a lot more of the Bible to work through our thoughts about God and in all of Scripture. In the Bible, God invites his people to knowledge, to understanding, to knowing. He, He gives them the ability to consider his offer of life, his promise, his nature. And that invitation comes to us in a world of contested claims, about what's real and true and good. So, of course, we experience doubt. It's the condition of a fallen world. One of the interesting things is that God encourages his people to doubt when they are faced with those alternatives. In Jeremiah 10, for example, uh, in Jeremiah, the, the big problem is that people seem drawn to worship idols for some strange reason. So God says, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. And then God holds up his own case as robust and sufficient. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom, stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. 
he sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouses. Now, to us, it seems like begging the question. It might not seem like an argument of reason to us, but it's the claim that God is the one creator. So why would God's people be so foolish as to put their trust in an idol which they have to make and move that has a very limited domain of its power when they could worship and know and trust in and be provided by the one God who made everything. If these are the alternatives they're faced with, God encourages them to reason it through to the end. Christian faith invites and it survives interrogation. We're given permission to wonder about what's really being offered here, even if we're not offered or not invited to do so solely on our terms. Because the second thing that we are given from this story about Thomas is that there is one key to how it is that Thomas comes from his point of doubt through to the resolution. And it is by that small and crucial uh, verse, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Now, the key is not that they were in the house, but that they were together. Because it could have gone differently, right? Thomas could have thrown his bike in the bush, taken off. He could have taken his, his bat and ball, just headed home in a big sulk. He could have wandered back to his family home and just called the last three years a write-off. Just a mistake. But he didn't. He remained with his ten friends those with whom he'd shared his experience of Jesus. Now, maybe they were the ones who held him there, saying, no, no, just wait, you'll see. Just, just give it time. Or maybe it was Thomas who stuck around as he tried to prove to them that they were mistaken. No, I'll show you. Look, let's see it together. He's kind of taunting them almost, right? It doesn't matter. The point is that they were together. And this is the context that's given to us for the resolution of our doubts. In one way or another, Thomas continued with the people of God who made this claim of Jesus' return from death. And I think we are encouraged by this story to process our doubt on the terms of the Christian claim itself. Now, that might be true of all claims. I don't know. But certainly in this story, the way of wondering what is said about Jesus is to enter the story and to try it. It is to come and see. It's to find out if Jesus says he's going to show up here, that his presence will be known in the company of his disciples, then that is where you should turn up to find out. And when you've understood exactly what is being said, and you've been with God's people to look for these signs of Jesus' presence among them as Jesus promised, then you'll know. When Jesus had turned up uh, for, the, for the ten disciples before Thomas was there, he said four things. He, he gave them his blessing of peace. He said that they were to go into the world, uh, just as he had, in the same way. He gave them God's spirit to empower and help them. And he gave them the mandate of setting forth God's forgiveness. So, if you're among God's people... And if these things are found, then you can ask to what depth and quality are they are found. And you can make an assessment. 
not only if it is true, but if it is good and if it is beautiful. And then you can make a choice. In theology, we we have a name for this, and as you would expect, it's very verbose. We, We say that the church is the plausibility structure for the gospel, which is a fancy way of saying the church is the place that demonstrates whether or not the message of Jesus is possible, plausible, actual. So if you're a Christian, you need to know that others belief or otherwise may be significantly impacted by you living this story faithfully or not. You don't make this story true or not true by living it or not living it, no. But you can deny its plausibility to others by your life or you can affirm its plausibility to others by your life. And if you're not a Christian, clearly the invitation is to consider what is actually happening here in this little suburban church, in the great wide world, the many years of all the believers and followers of Jesus there have been. So we've said that this story offers us the possibility of doubt, and it offers us a a tethering point for processing our doubt. And thirdly, it makes a claim about facing doubt. And that is a claim of its goodness. That faith on the far side of doubt is blessed, it's better, it's, it's good. Faith on the far side of the stretch of doubt is blessed, better. Now, it's not saying that blind faith is better because we began by saying that doubt is possible. There are hints that it's even necessary. You know, a Disney-shaped willpower-based belief is just not what Christians are talking about. Willing it to be true is not what we mean by the faith that saves. And we're neither saying that doubt is the good thing you know, in our, in our culture, whoever can deconstruct their beliefs the most wins, right? It's kind of like a, it's a bit of a game, almost. We're not saying that doubt is virtuous, but we are saying that processing our doubts, seeking knowledge and doing it together is indeed virtuous. Finding faith on the far side of doubt as a whole experience, that is blessed. It's better than faith without looking, better than faith without wondering. And I say this from the story only because it's Thomas and it's Thomas alone who makes the true identity claim about Jesus. Thomas is the only one who who says who Jesus really is in his fundamental identity, his nature. My Lord and my God, he says. Now this insight has been glimpsed by others before, but Thomas finds it for himself as he articulates his doubt, stays with it, and finds out what is on the other side. Because there's no resurrection account where anyone names Jesus as God except for this moment. The parallel in Matthew is that when the disciples meet Jesus in Galilee, they fall at his feet and worship him, which means the same thing. But it's the same dynamic of them having to go and find out and finding there, when they get there, who Jesus is. So this story gives us permission to doubt. 
and it gives us a point to tether our doubts, a process for working through them. And it gives us the promise that there is something to be found. And that means, that whole story means that you are better off for articulating your doubts. You're better off to just say, to put into words, to bring to the surface what bothers you about what it is you find in the biblical story, about what it is that Christians are claiming and how it is that Christians live. And we're really better off when we see those doubts to the end. I think most of us, um, no, most of us, I don't don't really know that. That just sounds good. I think there are some of us, (laughs) I've been here certainly, that live with a quiet fear that if we if we prod the Christian faith at particular points, they'll just fall apart. A belief that really the Christian faith is just a house of cards and we're just hoping that a wind that's not too strong comes by because our whole belief system might shatter. Or maybe, maybe it's more true that there's, It's easy to come up with a question or something that bothers us, but we know it takes effort to see that through to the end, so we just don't bother. But we are told by this story that we're we're really better off for doing so. You're better off to name to yourself what makes you nervous in Christian belief. And I think it holds up. It really does hold up. The Bible holds its own Christian belief holds its own. It does have its own logic, but that's the point. The point is that it causes any who believe it to come at odds with other claims of life and belief. You know, in the first few centuries of of the church, um, Christians got really nervous about something too. They got really nervous that the Bible seemed to suggest that Jesus was truly human. And this bothered them a great deal. They weren't really sure how they could actually build this whole belief system that was, was universal on, you know, someone who was truly human. Surely, I mean, God and human beings just couldn't come anywhere near each other. God was so great, human beings were so, you know, need to get rid of their physical nature. So how could they really come together? And it made the church so nervous. So some people made some compromises to try and make it sound better or whatever. But it just turned out that the cultural assumption about God was wrong. And the church benefited from facing what it needed to to clarify its beliefs on. It was the same in the Middle Ages. There was this dude named Galileo, and he made everyone very nervous by saying that the sun was at the middle, right? And everyone was really nervous. They genuinely thought that this would undo society. They really thought, okay, if that's true, there's no, we, we've got no reason to say that society holds up the way it does. And people thought everything would turn into anarchy. But it just turned out, I don't know if you know this story or not, but it just turned out that the cultural and philosophical assumptions about matter and physics were wrong. And the church benefited from facing the astronomical evidence and clarifying what was the source of its belief, what was the shape of its belief. It was the same at the Reformation. People got really nervous. Well, if you say that we are saved by grace alone, surely Europe will just become the most immoral. Every land in Europe will become this terribly immoral place. But the opposite happened. 
society got significantly more moral eventually and the church was whipped into shape. In the 19th and 20th century, it was the same again. Christians were made to feel very nervous because there was a couple of blokes in Germany who reckoned they could prove that the, the biblical documents were all edited significantly and that really they had this proof that Christianity was just an evolution of religion just like all of them. But it turned out they were wrong. It was bogus. The church just had to hold its nerve as the critics' own case unravelled. And I think that we can come to see that our doubts are often equally culturally located. And they're based more on society than on any real objective logic to which Christianity cannot hold up in. Now that doesn't make it easy, but it does make it easier. So the best way that you would live from this passage is to be part of a group of Christians with whom honest conversation can really happen. And in that gathering, we don't treat doubt as virtuous, but we treat exploration, honesty, knowledge, understanding as virtuous. We hold to the Bible firmly. We carry it all the way through to the end. What is the logical conclusion? Where does this really take me? And what is said here in this story is that it does, that in the company of Jesus' disciples, there is much to be found. Now, I have my own um, collection of stories of weathering doubts that nearly undid me. But instead of sharing with you any of those, I'm going to ask you over morning tea this morning after the service to share those with each other. Just walk up to someone and ask them this very polite question. What doubts have bothered you the most in your, in your walk with Jesus? See what they say. Who knows? Let me finish by reading these verses again from John 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.